Whether you're joining us in person this morning or you're tuning in online, we are so thankful uh, you're spending part of your Sunday morning with us. As Dan mentioned earlier, uh, if you are a first-time guest, we have a gift for you. Uh, we would love to get to connect with you after the service and meet with you and, and just get to know how we can best pray for you and love you and serve you uh, in any way that we really can. So uh, please be sure to connect with somebody, whether it's Dan or I or uh, somebody wearing a lanyard, that'd be a great person to connect with. But let's go ahead and get into God's Word together this morning. So uh, for one more time, uh, would you go ahead and grab your Bibles or, or your phones or whatever it is that you typically use to get your eyes on God's Word and meet me in the book of Jonah. We're going to be in Jonah 4 this morning. Uh, it's been such a joy and a privilege to get to walk through uh, the book of Jonah over the last few weeks. And so this morning we are wrapping up that series, uh, the story of God's grace. And we can at least say it's been an adventure, right? Uh, we have seen Jonah go lots of places in this, uh, in this book of God's word. We've seen him uh, running from God's grace, and we saw him praying for that same grace that he was running from. Then we saw him last week proclaiming God's grace. And now this morning in Jonah chapter 4, oddly enough, uh, we're going to see him angered by that same grace that he had run from and prayed for and proclaimed, and now he's going to be angry about it. That's what we're going to see this morning. So Jonah 4 this morning, and even if you uh, don't have a copy of God's Word with you this morning, I would really encourage you to be able to uh, follow along with us. There's a couple ways you could do that. Uh, you could Google Jonah chapter 4 on your phone. It'll pop up. Uh, we've got some Bibles in the back for you you could use. Or I'm sure in a room like this, there's someone sitting around you uh, that would be more than happy to let you uh, look on their copy of God's Word as well. But Jonah chapter 4 this morning, and even if you're still turning there, uh, let's pause together and just pray one more time for our time together in God's Word as we wrap up this series this morning. Uh, Father, uh, it has been uh, an adventure for sure to see your grace at work in the life of Jonah and to stop and to... Uh, pause and examine the track record of your grace in our own lives. How many of us had run from your grace, prayed for your grace, experienced your grace in so many different areas of our lives, and we praise you for that. And we ask this morning as we turn to your word uh, one more time in the, in the book of Jonah that you would uh, be abundantly present with us this morning to challenge us for sure from what we see Jonah wrestling with, but also to encourage us, to uh, equip us, to uh, serve you, and to ultimately uh, move in our hearts to be servants of you that, uh, that are not angered by grace, but want your grace to go everywhere that we can possibly get it and to do our parts in doing that. Would you be with us this morning and in, in, in working in our hearts as we look to your word? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, it could be said that there are only two types of car owners in this world. Uh, there's the kind of car owner that their, their floor mats are so clean that you could eat dinner off of them. Or there's also the type of car owner that uh, maybe their car looks like it's still part of an active crime scene. Now, I know that most of the people in this room know me well enough to know that I definitely fall into the former category there. Uh, like, I want my car clean at all times, especially on the outside. I want that thing uh, spotless. I want the, 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 the tires shined. Like, that's how I like to keep my car. And my family will tell you that the inside of my car, I like to keep it the same way. Like stray goldfish, as the, as the parent of two children and one on the way, stray goldfish are like my worst enemy in life. I'm always after them, fighting with them. So it's no secret how I feel about the cleanliness of my car. But you guys also know me well enough to know that it's no secret at all that when it comes to what's happening under the hood of the car, I have no clue what in the world. Like when I replace the windshield wiper fluid, I have to check like three times to make sure I'm not like accidentally pouring windshield wiper fluid in the transmission fluid thing. I have, I have no idea what's going on. 
And that's why I'm thankful that at some point in history, I, I don't know when it was, but somebody thought it would be a really good idea to invent something called the check engine light. I'm thankful that when something's going on the hood, under the hood that I need to know about as a car owner, that this little light pops up on the dash to tell me, uh, unlike what I normally am, like this, this light tells me, hey, like, pay attention to something more than the outside of your car. Something's going on, and you need to know about it. You need to check it out and get it fixed before something really bad happens, before you regret it and spend a lot of money. So the check engine light actually came on in my car a couple months ago, uh, right before we went on vacation, and thankfully... Uh, it was nothing serious. It was just something going on with the, the, uh, the emission system, and, and so it wasn't really that important. But when it, when it first came on, like, I had no idea whatsoever. Like, we're going on vacation, and so when the check engine light came on, what's going on in my mind is, like, the transmission's going to blow up somewhere on the highway. We're going to be stranded. This is going to be horrible. But that's why we have check engine lights, so that you would actually check them, and, and that, that exists to tell you there's something going on beneath the hood. So you, you check it, you figure out what the problem is, and then you get it fixed before something really bad happens. Unfortunately, uh, we don't have light bulbs on our foreheads to tell us when something's wrong with our hearts, like a check engine light, if you will. But God's Word does give us plenty of indicators that we can look at and examine ourselves with to, to let us know when something, something's off under the hood, that, that's something we need to, to look at and examine and, and, and get fixed before something really bad happens. And, and this morning in Jonah chapter 4, we're going to look at some of those indicators that were showing up in Jonah's life. See, if we had stopped our series last week after Jonah chapter 3, we might have been tempted to say that everything was finally perfect in Jonah's life. Like at that point, he was serving right where God wanted him to be. He was no longer running from grace. He was being obedient to God's word. He was proclaiming the gospel. God was blessing his ministry right where he had put him. But the problem is that that obedience, everything that we saw in Jonah chapter three, apparently was only skin deep. Everything looked great on the outside. The car was clean and shiny at the end of chapter three, if you will. But by the time we get to chapter four this morning, it shows us that there's something seriously wrong under the hood. The check engine light of Jonah's life was lit up like a Christmas tree, and instead of ignoring it, what Jonah needs to do is he needs to pay attention to it and allow God to continue to do the hard work of heart work that we've seen God doing all along in the life of Jonah throughout the book of Jonah. So if you're taking notes this morning, here's our big idea for us, our one-sentence overarching theme of the passage that'll tie it all together for us. Our big idea this morning is this, that God graciously works to instill hearts of grace in his people. Again, that God graciously works to instill hearts of grace in his people. So right in Jonah chapter 4 this morning, I want us to take a look at, at three check engine lights for our hearts. And as we do that, I want to encourage all of us, all of us as we've been doing all throughout this series, to, to take a moment and, and, and examine our own lives for whether or not these check engine lights might be going off in our, in our own lives. So let's go ahead and jump in. Let's turn the key on the ignition of the book of Jonah one more time, and let's see what lights come on on the dash. So here we go. Here's check engine light number one. Check engine light number one is when I think I know better than God. That when I think I know better than God. Now this first check engine light for Jonah's heart comes on in verses one through four of chapter four. So if you would uh, go ahead and look there with me. And just to set the stage, I'm actually going to start reading in the last verse of chapter three and go on. Here's what the book of Jonah says, this is God's word. It says, when God saw what they did, and that's the people of Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, 
And he prayed to the Lord and said, oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. The Lord said, do you do well to be angry? It's a good question, isn't it? Remember, our big idea this morning is that God graciously works to instill hearts of grace in his people. In other words, God's constantly working in our hearts to cultivate hearts in us that mirror his heart, hearts that are full of grace for others. So we've got to be honest enough with ourselves to admit that that is, that is not how we normally are. That's, that's not our natural disposition. It's not always to be full of grace, even though we should be. And so if that's true, if that's not our natural disposition, then, then we should hope that there's some way for us to monitor our hearts, to keep a, a watch on them, to make sure that we're not drifting in that direction. Chapter 3, God did an amazing work in Nineveh. Nineveh had been on a, a collision course with God's wrath because of their sin, but God showed them grace, not as a, as a free pass for their sin, not like, we'll just look the other way and let this go. That would be cheap grace, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call it. Not, not to do that, but because of their repentance, God relented. He showed them grace. And that should be something that everyone with a pulse should automatically be like, this is awesome. Like, we should celebrate. This is, this is great. That should be our natural reaction to this. But here in chapter 4, Jonah is mad about the whole thing. He's mad. He's angered by grace. In verse 1, it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. The original Hebrew, it's even stronger than that. It literally says that, that Nineveh's response or repentance in God's grace towards them was exceedingly evil in Jonah's eyes. Like That kind of a statement is meant to shock us. Like it should cause us to, to gasp, like, what are you thinking, Jonah? Like, this is, this is crazy. You're, you're out of your minds. He's furious that God would extend his grace to those people. Those, those, those people, those pagan sinners. But at least we can say that Jonah did not stop talking to God even in his anger. At least he kept pouring out to God with his heart. In verse 2 and 3 again, he says, Oh Lord, is this not what I said, what, what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Let's just, let's just stop there for a second. Like Jonah's on this rant. Let's just let's call time out on this whole thing. Let's just pause. There's several takeaways for us to to learn from Jonah's prayer here. There's really four lessons that I think we can learn from, from what we see Jonah praying here. The first lesson that we can take away here is quite simply that God is not afraid of our frustrations. He's not. He's not scared of our angry prayers. Doesn't bother God when we go to him frustrated and angry. Like he can handle it. So often I think when we pray, we're tempted to think that we have to approach God like we would approach the king of England with all kinds of proper polished, everything tied up nice in a bow and, and, and all of that, like we're meeting the King of England. But that's not at all the case when we come to God. Just look at the Psalms. The Psalms are filled with the prayers of people who are angry with God. They're disappointed. They're, they're frustrated. They're discouraged. They're airing their grievances to God and he's okay with it. He cares for us and he wants us to share with him what's on our hearts, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He invites us to come to him and just lay it all out there. And if you've 
not done that, I would just encourage you, when you pray, like, don't worry about it all being tied up in a nice, in a nice boat. Like, just go to him and let it out. In fact, that's what he wants from us. He wants us to, to, to bring our concerns and everything to him. So be honest with him. He's not afraid of our frustrations. Second lesson I think we can learn from this is that spiritual activity does not equal spiritual health. Like it's entirely possible to be going through the motions of obeying God, being in church, doing all kinds of things while your heart is not in a good place at all. It's entirely possible to be doing lots of church stuff all the time and be putting on some religious front on a Sunday morning when there's a serious problem beneath the surface. Listen, God does not want just cold, forced obedience. He wants hearts that are on fire for him and aligned with his heart. It's not enough for us to just go through the motions and check off some box, but as Ephesians 6, 6 says, we should be intent on doing the will of God from the heart about the heart. We've seen that through all throughout the book of Jonah. It's not about necessarily where, where his feet are or anything. It's about his heart. Sinclair Ferguson, Bible commentator, scholar, says this. He says, if there is a special danger for professing Christians today, it must certainly be indifference to an ignorance of the true nature of the human heart. How easily outward behavior and established patterns of belief can hide us from the true need we have for a new heart which beats in time with the heart of God. Friends, Jonah's outward behavior in chapter three was fantastic. Like he was nailing it last chapter. Like he was proclaiming God's grace. He was where he needed to be. But what we're seeing in Jonah chapter four shows us that his heart was not in step with God's. Let that be a lesson to us. Let that be a, a cause for us to examine the check engine lights of our hearts. Are our, our, our hearts aligned with his or are we just going through the motions? Third takeaway from Jonah's prayer here is the reminder that we don't own grace. Remember the pinnacle of this book back in chapter two, we, we saw Jonah's statement when he said, salvation belongs to the Lord. Like that's the high point of this book. And, it, and it's true. And what Jonah's doing here now in his prayer in chapter four is he's basically quoting back to God, what God said to about himself to Moses when he revealed himself to Moses back in Exodus 34. Exodus 34 says this, that the Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, so again, this is God speaking about himself. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And most commentators agree that what Jonah's doing here, like a toddler, is he's, he's basically taking God's words and just throwing them back in God's face as if to say, like, listen, God, I know you're all of those things. Like, I get it. I know that's you. But as Yahweh, the, the God who has covenanted with us as, as Israel, you're only supposed to be those things to us, not to those people. Those, that, this stuff's for us. We're not, we're not interested in sharing the wealth, your salvation. You, it's, you say it belongs to us, but it's really for us. It's, it's not for them. So even though that Jonah's already acknowledged that salvation belongs to the Lord, deep in his heart, he's still only viewing God's love for people through an extremely narrow lens. What he's really doing here is, what he's dealing with in his own heart is his own prideful nationalism. The thought that, that because he is Jewish, he and his people have the exclusive legal rights to God's grace and that God is not free to extend that grace to anyone else. Like this is just for us, God. That's, that's, that's Jonah's perspective here. When I took Hebrew in seminary, we studied the book of Jonah in incredible depth. Translate, like that's part of why I love the book of Jonah so much. But at the end of the second semester, our 
our professor invited a, a Jewish rabbi to come to our class and, and just so we could hear a, a Jewish perspective on the book of Jonah, even though clearly he missed the entire point of the whole book points to Jesus, but that's beside the point. But it was, is, it was interesting to hear what he had to say. He, he told our class that on the, the Jewish holiday Yom Kippur every year, the book of Jonah is read in the synagogue every single year. And he said that the reason that it's read to the Jewish people is to remind them that this is not about you. That God has put you on this earth to be a blessing to all people. Like even a Jewish perspective understands that about this book. But I think Jonah missed the message. He thinks that grace is for people like him, not for those people. He's having an attitude of salvation belongs to me, not salvation belongs to the Lord. And that is not a heart of grace. So the fourth takeaway we could take from Jonah's prayer that I see here really encompasses the other three is that pride is a spiritual cancer. Pride is a spiritual cancer that, that slowly eats away at the condition of our hearts. It's, it's really self-righteous pride that's, that's driving Jonah to be angered by grace here because he thinks he knows better than God. But just look at how self-centered his prayer is. He's, he's basically like, look, God, I told you this was what was going to happen, so I hope you're happy with yourself. Like, this is why I ran for Tarshish, because you're always doing this kind of gray stuff. And, and this time, you know what? You got a little too careless. So, so you, now you've got a bunch of pagan people on your hands, so, so good luck. Like, don't say I didn't warn you, because in a little bit, God, they're going to turn on Israel. Like, I know where this is going to go, so good luck, not my fault. Don't say I didn't warn you. Like, that's basically what Jonah's saying back to God in his, in his, in his prayer here. His prayer here is not thy will be done. It's, God, why wasn't my will done? Why didn't you do what I wanted you to do? Why didn't you, why didn't you just listen to me while you had the chance? Ever prayed one of those prayers? Jonah's Monday morning quarterbacking God's decision and making it clear that he thinks he knows better than God. It's pride in his heart that's left him angry with God and being selfish with grace. Like after all of the grace that he's received for the past three chapters, it's the pride in his heart that's left him viewing the people of Nineveh as a dangerous enemy to be defeated and destroyed, not a city full of people that need God's grace just as much as he did. So how often do we have prideful hearts that sit around questioning God's own use of his grace? Of course, we never say it out loud. Maybe it's just the, the thoughts that creep in our mind when, when nobody else is listening, of course. But, but how often do we hear about someone who's made a profession of faith, whether it's a celebrity or an athlete or the person that you went to high school with, that you know their past, you know what they've been through, and your gut reaction is to say, that'll never last. You wasted your grace on that one, God, because you, know you should have consulted with me first because I could have saved you a lot of heartache in the future because I know where this is going to go. I know they're not going to really change God, so you should have talked to me, and I could have saved you a lot of trouble. God, forgive us of those thoughts, whether we say them out loud or not. Because basically, in our own pride, we try to make ourselves out to be God's personal press secretary or his top advisor, instead of just taking a step back and humbly submitting ourselves to the fact that whether we like it or not, God knows what's best far better than we do. He knows what he's doing. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But God is so gracious. He's so kind here with Jonah. He doesn't condemn Jonah for the prideful nonsense he's been spewing. He, he asks Jonah this question to draw out the true condition of his heart. He doesn't feed into the argument. He just says, do you do well to be angry, Jonah? Like, listen to yourself. 
Is what you're saying right now right? Is it true? Is it good? Is it consistent with, with, with what you know my character to be? That's basically what God's asking Jonah here. Jonah doesn't answer yet, but the first check engine light is on in his heart. It's clear that he thinks he knows better than God. So let's take a look at the second check engine for our hearts this morning. Our, our second check engine light is this. One, I want grace for myself, but judgment for others. Check engine lights on. When I want grace for myself, but judgment for others. Look back with me at verses 5 through 9 of Jonah chapter 4. It says this. So Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next morning, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. So Jonah didn't answer God's question right away, and apparently he's done venting by this point. So he decides to go off on his own, and, and what he does next in the text would, would be hilarious if it wasn't so sad. He leaves Nineveh and goes outside the city and sets up camp to, to sit in and, and wait to see for himself what would become of the city. Basically what he's doing here is he's, he's calling bluff on God's grace, and he's, he's hoping that any minute uh, God's going to have enough of those, those disgusting rebels, and he's raining down fire on the city of Nineveh to the point that it's going to make what, what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah look like nothing more than a flame on a birthday candle. That's what, that's what Jonah's hoping right now. Like, just picture this scene. He basically pulls up a lawn chair like it's the 4th of July and, and, and just waiting for the fire. Like, go ahead, God, light them up. I'll sit here and I'll wait. Understatement of the year coming right here. His reaction is not showing a heart of grace. It's not what's going on in Jonah right now. It's, it's showing that even though he's been the recipient of so much grace that has pursued him and changed him and used him for the past three chapters, he's not interested in seeing the people that he doesn't like get to experience that same grace. He wants them to experience the judgment that even though he deserved, God showed him grace and he never received. He wants grace for himself, but judgment for others. So the check engine light is on in his life. Of course, God already knew the condition of Jonah's heart. So he, he, he decided to teach Jonah a lesson here in an up close and, and personal way, right where Jonah's sitting. Now, obviously, I've never been to the desert, but I hear it's really hot there. And so, so what God does, he decides to give him some shade. And another incredible display of God's sovereignty, just like we saw when he controlled the storm and appointed the fish and then had the, the fish spit Jonah out, God appoints what's probably a castor oil plant to grow up right next to Jonah and block him from the hot sun. Both sovereignty and grace right there. And verse 6 says that, that Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Like, that's an understatement. Like, all in favor of shade in the desert. Like, I'm a big fan of this idea right here. But think of this. This is the first time in the entire book that we're told that Jonah was exceedingly glad. He's more thrilled about this plant than he was when, A, when God saved his own life, 
B, when God restored him to ministry. C, when God, uh, God saved an entire repentant city. Like, how shallow is that? Like, let's call it what it is. It's really shallow. Jonah's about himself right here. It shows his pride and self-interest. See, even the shade that he's sitting under right here should have been a reminder to Jonah of just how much he's benefiting from God's grace. So why on earth would he be sitting here hoping for God's judgment to fall on Nineveh? God's still not done with his object lesson yet. Jonah probably sat there in his lawn chair for the rest of the day, enjoying the shade, maybe sipping on some sweet tea, maybe, uh, maybe just sitting there enjoying the breeze, and then, and then he crawls into his hammock at night. That's what I imagine, and, and whatever's going on out here. He crawls into this hammock tonight to get a, a good night's sleep, but he wasn't expecting what he would wake up to the next morning. See, overnight, God appointed a worm. Again, there's God's sovereignty all over again to destroy the plant. And when Jonah woke up, his first question was like, who turned off the air conditioning? <laughs> Like, it's hot out here again. Like, what, what's going on here? Because not only was the shade gone, but at this point, God also sent a scorching wind to blow right in his face, like a massive hairdryer right in his face in the middle of the desert. Again, God's sovereignty. We can only imagine how miserable Jonah is, but before long, he's had enough of it. He's back to where he was back in verse three, where he says, you know what? This is terrible. Go ahead and kill me now, God. Like, I'm done with this. So what God's been doing here, though, all along, is he's using the shade plant and the worm and the the terrible heat to teach Jonah about his own heart, to draw out the heart of his servant, to show him the true condition of his heart. It's grace all over again. It's what he's been doing this entire book when he's pursued him and disciplined him and he's he's not done with him. He's trying to draw him back. God's basically trying to give Jonah a taste of his own medicine. He's, He's saying to Jonah, like, you like it when things are going your way, don't you? It's really convenient when it's in the shade. You're happy when I show you grace and you're all comfy, but it's not so much fun when you're on the receiving end of judgment, is it? Like you're looking down on those people in Nineveh and and holding them to a standard you don't want yourself held to, and it's not right. Like everything, Jonah, everything is about grace here. Everything you have is a direct result of God's grace in your life, and it's only a fraction, and, and the bad parts here that you're experiencing is only a fraction of what you were wishing on Nineveh. Remember what you said, Jonah? Salvation belongs to the Lord. You're right. It does belong to to God. And he can distribute it whenever and wherever and to whoever he wants. But Jonah wants grace for himself, but judgment for others. Friends, we're not immune to that way of thinking either. In fact, not only are we not immune to it, I would argue again that this is our, our natural default. But God, by his grace, is graciously working to instill hearts of grace in his people, in us. Our factory setting is to keep grace to ourselves and want judgment for others. Our default is to hold other people to a higher standard than we have for ourselves. Now, if you don't think that's true, let me just give you a couple of examples. So you don't have to be married for very long to realize that this is what we do as husbands and wives all the time. So when you're dating and engaged, if you think back to those days, you're selfless and full of grace all the time. Like you're in love, you'll do just about anything that the other person could possibly want. You'll do anything for them. But marriage has this way of revealing how prideful and selfish we really are. So it doesn't take long after you've been married and you start living together in the same house with another sinner to start noticing all of the things about them that that frustrate the life out of you that you really never noticed before, right? Don't, Don't talk to your spouse about it right now. But you all know, right? You, you start living in the same house with another sinner, and there's, there's things that you never noticed before that start grating on your nerves. And so, so, so what you don't realize, though, is that they're having the same experience. 
that they're thinking the same thing about you. They're noticing things about you that frustrate them, and they're determined to fix you too. But then it all comes to a head when you lovingly sit down with them, and you're going to explain some things, and you're going you're gonna to work things out with them, and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna fix them, and you're shocked to hear that they're thinking the same thing about you. And it's, and it's crazy. Like You're the one that's been doing this thing your whole, your whole life, so the problem was with them, clearly. When you're doing that, you want grace for yourself, but judgment for others, right? We do the same thing as parents all the time. Like when we're angry with our kids, when, we're, when we're, 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 uh, we're, they're frustrating us and we, we sin against our kids in our own anger, we want grace for ourselves, right? We want to say that we're sorry. We want to we move on. We want grace for ourselves. But when they step out in disobedience to us, we are ready to be God's wrath upon their heads, right? Grace for ourselves. Judgment for others. Maybe you turn on the news or you scroll through social media and you hear or read stories of all kinds of sin and crime and wickedness and tragedy. And instead of your heart breaking for those people and praying for them and longing for them to experience the grace of God that can save them and change them and restore them, your reaction is to judge them and almost even be entertained by the drama of their brokenness. So you keep coming back to the news. You keep checking their Facebook page, not because you care, not because you, you generally are invested in this, but because you want to know all the dirty details. And you find yourself thinking and maybe even saying things like, like what's wrong with those people? Like, I hope they get what they deserve. Like, they, they should know better. They, they, they're, they're crazy. It's wanting grace for yourself, judgment for others. When we just sit back and self-righteously watch others with disgust, we're really no different than Jonah. We're basically pulling up our lawn chairs next to his somewhere outside of the city of Nineveh and saying, you know what, I would never do something like that. My sin is so much cleaner and so much purer than their sin. So, so go get them, God. Go, go take it on them. Just, just let me know when the fireworks are about to start. I'm going to go grab some popcorn. You let me know and I'll be here waiting for you. So when we're doing that, we're not viewing people through God's eyes. We're viewing them through the self-righteous lens of wanting grace for ourselves, but judgment for others. But what they really need in that moment is the grace of God that has saved and is changing us to save and change them as well. Before we move on, I want to just offer two important principles about grace and judging and judgment that I think would be helpful for us. Because sometimes when we talk about things like this and grace and judging and judgment, what our role is, we, we can get confused pretty quickly. So I just want to offer a couple principles very quickly and very clearly. Principle number one, grace does not excuse or ignore sin. Grace doesn't sweep sin under the rug. It actually cleans it up. Like think all the way back to Jonah chapter one. God didn't just let Jonah run back in chapter one and go, go do his whole thing. Like, we'll just keep this to ourselves. No, God pursued him and disciplined him and brought him back to a place of repentance and restoration. How? By his grace. That's what we should do with the people that we know and love as well. See, grace without truth is not grace at all. We should be like Jesus in John 1.14, who was full of grace and truth. So grace doesn't excuse or ignore sin or stand by passively and watch. Grace gets involved. It it takes a hands-on approach. That's principle number one. Here's principle number two. There's a very fine line between genuine concern about sin that that we might have in in, in biblical community. There's a difference between that and wrongful judging of sin like we see Jonah doing here. And the line is drawn at the heart level. Like, yes, Jonah is wrong here. He, he was not concerned about these people. He, what he's doing here was some wrongful judging. Let's just be really clear about that. 
but observing sin and being genuinely grieved or concerned by what you see and then, and, then, and then reaching out and saying something does not automatically mean that you're wrongfully judging. Like just read 1 Corinthians 5. Like there is a right way and a wrong way to judge and sometimes it's, it's absolutely necessary. All times we should do it in the right heart and the right way with a heart of grace. The thing is, it's necessary to check our hearts all the time because that line can be crossed in a heartbeat if you're not paying attention to the check engine lights of your heart. But when you want grace for yourself and judgment for others, there's a check engine light on in your hearts. That's very much connected to our third check engine light this morning. Check engine light number three is this. When I don't share God's heart for the lost. Check engine lights on. Number three, when I don't share God's heart for the lost. Look back with me one last time with the book of Jonah. Just verses 10 and 11. We'll see God's response here to what Jonah's been saying. It says, And the Lord said, Jonah, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. See, just in case God's heart-revealing illustration of that shade plant wasn't clear enough for Jonah, God speaks. He makes it extremely clear what he's been getting at all along. He says, listen, Jonah, you say you're angry enough to die because that plant didn't last for more than a day. So let's just, let's just talk about your anger problem here. Really, Jonah, how, how important was that plant to you? You couldn't be that attached. It was only there for 24 hours. Like you, you, you only liked that plant because you benefited, it, or it benefited you, not because you cared for it. It's not like you were the gardener who planted that plant and then spent time watering it and tending it and caring for it, and, and, and then you only had to watch it wither away. It's not like that. You can't say any of that about your relationship to that plant, Jonah. But that's only a fraction of how I feel about the people in Nineveh. All of those people inside the walls of that city, city Jonah, I care about them. I made them in my image. I have loved them since before the world began. And yes, yes, their, their, their sin has come up before me. I'm a, I was angry. They needed to repent or face judgment. But I have not wasted my time with those people. Those people mean the world to me. And the sadness that you feel about your little shade plant there, Jonah, is nothing compared to the grief that I felt when I had to consider their own judgment. That's basically what God's saying here. Saying, Jonah, that's why I sent you to, to Nineveh. Because I care about these people. That's why I extended grace, because I care about these people. Friends, that's God's heart of grace for us. It's God's heart for the lost. That's God's heart of grace for people that we're so tempted to look down on. Do we share his heart? Do you see people the way he sees them? Or are you hard-hearted and quick to write them off? Are you quick to be skeptical and cynical at grace? Or are you ready to share God's heart? to watch him work, to see people saved, to see lives changed. Friends, it's incredibly costly to love people. It's messy. It'll get uncomfortable. It'll get awkward at times. It'll cost you time, energy, heartache, frustration. Quite honestly, it might even cost you at sometimes the approval of, of some people who claim to be followers of Jesus. But the reality is that it will be costly for you to have God's heart for the lost, but it'll never cost you as much as it costs him. Grace is free, but it came with a price. See, the reality of, is that God was willing to spare Nineveh when they repented, but in order to do that, he couldn't spare his own son. 
It's not like we get to the end of the book of Jonah here and, and, and Nineveh's sin just gets swept under the rug and, and goes unpunished and we're like, you know what, we'll just, we'll just forget this whole thing. That's not what happens here. No, somebody would have to die for the sins of Nineveh or the people of Nineveh would have to die for their sins. And so in the future from this, it would cost God his own son because he loved us so much, because he loved the people of Nineveh so much, because he loved you so much, he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to come to this earth and live the perfect life that you could never live. And then went to the cross to take the punishment for your sins, to die in your place. And then he died there on the cross and rose again so that if you would repent or turn from your sins, as we've been talking all the way throughout Jonah, and place your faith in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation, he will save you. And if you've never done that, just like I do every single time I, that I preach, I want to encourage you, plead with you, beg you, consider the gospel. Jesus died for you. Grace is available to you, and you can receive him right where you are. Pray, come talk to us after the service. But for those of us that are already followers of Jesus, you can never lose sight of the fact that God's heart for the lost cost him far more than it will ever cost us. Like we've seen throughout this book, God will go to incredible lengths to reach people with his grace. And by his grace, at the end of this book, he's working to instill hearts of grace in us so that we can be more like Jesus than we are like Jonah. See, in Jonah chapter four at the end, Jonah's sitting outside Nineveh on a hill and he's looking at Nineveh and he was angry that it was being saved and he wished that it would have been lost and destroyed. But in Luke chapter 19, we see Jesus sitting on a hill outside of a city. He's looking at Jerusalem and not wishing for their judgment. He's weeping at their lostness and wishing that these people would be saved. The dangerous reality for us is that a little Jonah lurks in the heart of every single one of us, whispering reasons for pride, hard-heartedness, hypocrisy. What God is working, though, is he's, he's working to instill hearts of grace in us that will over time replace hearts like Jonah's, giving us hearts of grace that will share God's heart for the lost, hearts that will never lose sight of just how much God's grace uh, that we've received and are receiving, hearts that will then want to extend that grace to those who don't know Jesus. So the book of Jonah ends with a question from God that echoes throughout time. God says, should I not pity Nineveh? Should I not have a heart for the lost? A sad ending to this book is that we don't know how Jonah answered that question. Obviously, we, we hope that in the moment, God got a, heart, a hold of his heart all over again. And he cried out, yes, God, yes, you should pity Nineveh. God, forgive me for my hard-heartedness. Give me a, another heart of grace. Reach those people. Reach me again. Of course, we hope that's what happened, but, but we don't know. In a very real sense, though, it doesn't matter for us how Jonah answered that question matters how you're going to answer that question. So as we end our time together in the book of Jonah, just take a few moments this morning to ask ourselves a series of, a series of questions that I, I hope we'll take seriously and use to examine our hearts, use as check engine lights and reflect on these questions. I'm just going to read them slowly while Amy's playing. Don't let them bounce off of your, your, your minds as you're thinking about lunch. Let them echo in your minds. Let these serve as reflection questions for you. But do you share God's heart of grace for people that are not like you? Or is your heart hardened and different? 
your thoughts and conversations filled with grace about people who are stuck in their sin. Your actions and words seek to reach the people with the grace that God has given you so that that grace can change them as well. You care more about your own comfort and convenience than you do about the spread of the gospel. Do you agree with what scripture says, that the truth of God's word about what will happen if people die apart from Jesus Christ? That there is a literal physical place called hell, but that God in his grace provided a way to escape that, to run to Jesus and be saved. Do you truly believe that? Do you genuinely rejoice when people do believe that? When people come to Jesus, give their lives to him, do, does, do you rejoice at that? Or is it just another piece of information that you hear throughout a week? Do you honestly have compassion for people who don't have a clue what they're doing, as, as Jonah said, don't know their right hand from their left. Do you, do you have compassion on those people? Not to condemn them from afar, but to counsel them up close. To reach them with grace. Will you pray? Will you give? Will you go? But what, what are you willing to do to help to get the gospel to your family, to your neighbors, to your coworkers, to your city? and to literally the 3.4 billion people around the world who have little to no access to the gospel. If what we see in the book of Jonah really is God's heart of grace for lost and broken people, the question we have to wrestle with is do I care? pray for us as the worship team comes. Father, give us hearts of grace. Forgive us for our hard-heartedness. And the times that we want grace for ourselves, but judgment for others. we prayed last week at the end of the service, search us and know our hearts. See if there be any wicked way in us. Bring it to our minds. Convict us of sin. But don't just leave us there. God, change us by your grace. Make us a people who are so reminded of our own need for grace and are so grateful for our, how we've received your grace that we will extend that grace to everyone that we meet every chance that we get, everyone, everywhere, all the time. Your grace, your gospel, your son, Jesus Christ, are the only hope that anyone has for anything, not least of which is salvation. So God, would you draw us to yourself, maybe for salvation, for someone who here this morning is, is never turn from their sins and place their faith in Jesus. Draw them to yourself now, but draw all of us to yourself. As the hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. That's us. That's Jonah. That's us on a regular basis. May it not be so. Tether us to yourself. Change us by your grace. And use us for your glory. 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen.